Will you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. To tell us the truth about sin and the way that it works in the world and in our lives. Would you right now give my brothers and sisters and friends in this room courage to peer into this text and to allow you to tell us the truth? Would you do that work even now by the power of your spirit where we need to be shaken awake? I pray that you would do that. Where we need to be warned or challenged that you would do that. That this word would not just glance off the surface of our hearts, that, but by the power of your spirit, you would work it down into our stories. Would you make it true, God? We thank you in advance for what you intend to do in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an ominous text. We're studying the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. We're calling it Origins, exploring the origins of major realities that shape our life and existence. And last week we saw sin enter the system. And this week we see sin kind of settled down into the system. And what we're experiencing is the origins of depravity. The origins of the, the reality that sin sin infiltrates and infests every corner of our experience and touches and mars our experience of the world. Today's text is unsettling, if we're honest. Uh, the image that has come to mind, it's, it's kind of a, a graphic one, so I, I give you fair warning, but I want to show you this image. This is what has come to mind this week for me with this text. I wrestle with like, do I really, do I really start with a crocodile eating its prey? And I, I thought, you know what, yes, and if I could have found the right video, I probably would have played that too, because I think we need like the wake-up graphic call that this in many ways is a picture of what Genesis 4 is like. You familiar with the crocodile death roll? You know what a crocodile does? Because crocodiles, as it were, they, they don't actually chew. They chomp and they swallow. They don't, they don't chew. They're kind of like my grandfather in that way. You just <laughs> chomp and swallow right down. Uh, that as a result, when it's a large prey, when they're really working on a large prey, that they actually, they chomp and then they start turning circles. And it's called the death roll. A crocodile does this to disorient its prey. They drag it down into the water, either drowning it or just getting it so disoriented and so, as it were, kind of mangled that it will just quit fighting back. And that's when they can start doing their work. Unsettling disorienting. But I want you to have this image because I think this is what the author of the scriptures, ultimately the Holy Spirit inspiring Genesis chapter 4 for our benefit, he's giving us a wake-up call and saying, this is how sin works in your life. This is how sin works throughout the history of mankind and is laboring to work in your life. That if it gets its teeth in you, that's just the start. Because sin, like an aggressive cancer, metastasizes. Sin swells. Sin is not satisfied until it has all of you and it kills you. This text is ominous. And it should sober us. 
This text is saying to us that sin swells and so we have to kill sin or it will kill us. So today is in many ways like a search and rescue mission. I've been praying and asking the Holy Spirit to come and to seek out friends in the room, brothers and sisters that right now feel like they might be in the clutches of sin, beginning its death roll on them. And what I'm asking is that God, by the power of his spirit, would shine a light into those places and begin to help us see how sin works in our lives so that we can put it to death. So how we're going to do this is we're going to examine the the path of depravity in our lives and in history. We're going to see how sin swells. We're going to explore that together. And then we're going to ask the question by the time we're done, how do we interrupt this process and put sin to death before it kills us? Well, sin enters in the most innocuous and simple sorts of places and ways. We saw it last week. It was Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit, some forbidden fruit. And this week in their offspring and Cain and Abel, we see them coming to worship God as it were, to make offerings. But we're going to see that there's a distinction between the two offerings. And what last week entered in through a a forbidden piece of fruit being eaten, this week we're going to see that there's something in the offering of fruit or the withholding of fruit in the way that Cain is, is kind of hedging in his worship of God that we're seeing that this sin is still present. It's got its teeth in Cain in the way that he's holding back on God. Pay attention to the language of the two offerings in these early verses that we're going to see that there's no, there's no kind of descriptors of Cain's offering. It's not the first fruit. It's not the best of what he has. He just gives some fruit. But Abel, there's very clear distinguishers. It was, it was a, a kind of a, the firstborn and it was of the fat portions. Let me read it to you and hear the distinction between the offerings being, being given. It says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and she bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. Now you'll remember that last week in studying Genesis three, that God made a promise that there was one coming of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. You get the sense that Eve is waiting with anticipation for the crush, for the, for, pardon me, for the serpent crusher. And when she has birth to a baby boy, she's got these high hopes with God's help. I've gotten a man. Maybe this is the one that's going to fight back and win the victory for us. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he has no regard. Now, it's not just that the Lord prefers meat offerings to fruit offerings. That's not what's going on here. It's not that he's kind of arbitrarily receiving the worship from one and not the other. We know throughout the whole of the Old Testament that God, God receives offerings based off of what's going on in the heart of the, the, the one offering it. And we get the little hints in the text that I was pointing out to you that it seems that Cain is not bringing his best. Perhaps he's beginning to wonder Is God really to be trusted? Will he really care for me and provide for me? Maybe I need to hold back a little bit and not trust God with everything in my life because if I were to give of the first and the best, am I really going to be cared for? You get a sense of whatever is going on here, Cain at a heart level is holding back in his worship, which we might be tempted to say, is that really that big of a deal? You know, 
Maybe he held back a little bit of fruit. Are we talking about a, a bushel of apples here? Is that the issue at hand? And listen, as we're going to start tracing the path of depravity in humanity's story, it always starts in really insignificant places. The way that temptation and desire and sin show up in your life, they don't show up in the full-forged death roll revelatory moment. They show up in simple ways, little ways, where you can shrug and go, is it really that big of a deal? We're just talking about a little fruit here. On this mission of trying to understand how sin works in our lives, I want to just paint the picture that there's lots of off-ramps here. You don't have to get caught in the death roll of sin. And here's one of them, just right at the outset, if we would pause and ask the question, where is it that sin and temptation consistently gets its teeth into you? We see it in Cain as he starts to hedge and to hold back in worship. But the truth is, there's some simple ways where consistently, if we were honest, we'd be able to say, yeah, I know it, it often shows up here. Maybe it's that first moment of unconfessed lust the thing that you feel like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I don't need to name it. You had a, a dream about a coworker or you had a thought that kept popping up and you go, oh, that would be really embarrassing to name to the people closest to me. So I'm just gonna assume there's nothing to that. I'm gonna kind of shrug it off and keep moving. Or it's, it's that kind of unconfessed greed, the way that when things are uncomfortable, you oftentimes find yourself back on Amazon scrolling for one more thing you don't really need, but that can be here by the end of the day. And you think that if I make this purchase, it's gonna make me feel better. And you start to realize like, why is it? It feels, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I can shrug that off. The fact that I keep spending money in these ways, I keep running to these wells that don't satisfy. Perhaps it's that flash of anger that you just brush under the rug because to name it and to be embarrassed and humiliated and say, I shouldn't have spoken that way. It's just too uncomfortable. Where is it that the teeth of sin and temptation and desire get into you? For Cain, we see it here in this moment. He's holding back. He's not wide open with God. He's beginning to hedge. And very quickly, it escalates from there. Because what comes on the heels of us holding back is that as soon as it's exposed, we see that there's this hot-headed defensiveness. There's anger that for Cain escalates to its fullest sense when we see the first homicide in human history. But, but ultimately what, what we're seeing is that there's anger and defensiveness that is protecting the, the sin and the struggle that he's participating in. See it here in verses five through eight and pay attention to the way that Cain so quickly becomes defensive and angry. It says this, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Do you hear it? This is the same thing God was doing in chapter three. He shows up and he asks questions. It's as if he's giving Cain an off-ramp. He's going, hey, don't you know? If you worship me with your whole heart, if you don't hold back, I will receive you. Hear the heart of the father beckoning to Cain, going, this does not have to be your story. Don't let the teeth sink into you and the role begin to take place. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. 
It says that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. This kind of carries the connotation of premeditation. He's speaking to Abel and saying, hey, come on out to the fields with me. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. Anger, defensiveness, wrath. This is what begins to emerge from the place where where sin started that seems so insignificant. It's important for us to consider our own agitation and anger because it often is the sort of thing that is protecting something. Whenever you're really angry or agitated, it would be helpful for you to pause and to say, what am I protecting right now? Why am I responding this way to a spouse or a friend or a roommate? Why such emotion and frustration? Because it's, it's often the revelation that you're protecting something. You're trying to cover something. Um, it's kind of like the, the rotten wood on the back of my house that I've been tempted to think if we can just put one more fresh coat of paint on it, it will be fine. But if you, if you know that wood is rotting, a fresh cut, coat of paint is not going to cut it. Real quickly, it's flaking off again because there's something that actually has to be dealt with there. When sin enters into the system in small ways and it lays hold of you, it is always going to want more. It is always going to press further. And there will be people in your lives and circumstances that start to expose it. And the place where you, can, where you realize that the death roll is beginning is when your response to those moments of exposure are anger, agitation, and defensiveness. The roll is beginning. The spiral is starting. When you start to hold people at bay because you're protecting something under the surface, the danger of being exposed in the midst of what's going on. I've, I've sat with more couples over the last several years where something hidden was finally made known and they're starting to get healing. And I've heard them consistently say this, for the longest time I didn't know why he or she was so angry. It felt like they were always agitated about something and I didn't ever know what I did wrong. And then finally, when something was exposed, the realization was the anger and the defensiveness was a protection towards the level of kind of hiddenness and, expo- and the desire not to be exposed. Anger and defensiveness is a way that we protect our areas of desire and temptation of sin. You see, it moves from holding back holding back from not being wholehearted in our worship to God. So wherever it is that we're seeking to be fulfilled somewhere else. And then when we're threatened that it might be exposed, that the second step of depravity's journey is that we get hot-headed and defensive and angry. And this very quickly, it metastasizes, it swells, it grows into a place where we are rejecting God himself. When you start keeping others out with your anger and your defensiveness, you are paving the way for saying to God, I don't want you involved in this area whatsoever. And for Cain, it very quickly gravitates. It it moves into that space. In verses 9 through 16, we see that God continues to approach with questions. It's as if he's saying, there's an off-ramp for you. And listen, friends, as God asks the next question of Cain, as he continues to speak and call out to this angry and defiant young man, hear the heart of the Father speaking to you in your areas of greatest shame and sin. Whatever it's like right now, wherever you feel like it has you, listen, there's hope. 
There's an off-ramp. The heart of the father comes to seek out his own and says, come with me. We see the great sadness in the way that Cain rejects it here. That does not have to be your story. Look at verses 9 through 16 with me. It says, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He shows up with a question again, giving Cain the space to tell God the truth. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And incidentally, he does know, and he is his brother's keeper. He is in full on denial at this point. And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Do you hear God graciously providing off-ramps and Cain with high-handed rejection saying, I'm not interested. One of the ways that you know depravity has set into your story is that when you are finally called to account and sin is exposed, there is no remorse over the brokenness of the sin. There is only self-pity. Did you hear it there? God says, Cain, you can't hide anymore. The blood is calling to me, curses from the ground. I know what you've done. And Cain does not break in this moment. God's still standing there at the ready going, Cain, tell me what's going on with your brother. He still doesn't break. He doesn't go and fall at the feet of Adam and Eve and say, please forgive me for murdering your own son. He doesn't say to God, I am so flawed and sinful and I have made an attack on your very image in the world. He doesn't do that. Did you hear what he said? He said, this is too much for me to bear. So self-involved, the death roll is in full on swing because in this moment, he can't think about anybody but himself. The only thing that he is upset about is the consequences of getting caught. Not the fact that he's wounded others or that he's broken the heart of God. Have you ever been in that moment? I certainly have. Scrambling to hide and to protect myself and when it gets exposed, all I can think about how this is gonna affect me. This is the path of depravity. This is the death roll. This is the dead end road that it will take you on. You will end up having only a victim mentality thinking, oh, this is so hard, all that I have to deal with. Would you pause and consider where does sin have its teeth in you? And where do you begin to feel the pull, anger and defensiveness, trying to keep others at bay, starting to hold God at bay himself? There's a part of us, this is the lie that we're tempted to believe in this moment, if you're honest. And the place of your greatest shame, that 1% of darkness that you kind of maintain in your heart to retreat to, if we're honest, the lie that we convince ourselves is this. Just give me a little bit of time. 
like with some time, my sophisticated approach, I'm going to get some more education, I'm going to learn about this, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to manage this. Listen, sin management leads to sin multiplication. You trying to manage it and fix it just allows the crocodile to keep rolling. It will not stop until you're dead. This is what sin does. And to prove it to you from the text, I want to read the following verses quickly. But I want you to hear this. If you think time plus sophistication plus working at it to manage it is going to work, listen to what happens as time continues to stretch out for Cain who continues to resist what God is doing. We're going to see generation after generation come and I want you to see what happens when it comes into full flower in the seventh generation in Lamech. Let me read to you verses 17 through 23. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and she bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now listen, the building of the city is evidence that the death roll is still happening. What did God say to Cain? He said, you will be a wanderer on the earth. This is Cain saying, no, I won't. I'm gonna build a city. I'm gonna make a name for myself. I'm gonna gonna hunker down. And into this place, he continues to try to manage what's happening. It says this, to Enoch was born Erod, and to Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methujael, and Methujael fathered Lamech. You see, I didn't make, I didn't make them read these verses at the beginning. Uh, It was merciful on my part. Um, Verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man, or this could be like a little boy. I have killed a little boy for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77. Do you hear it? That, that there's this development, there's sophistication entering the system. A city is formed, and then it says that musical instruments were created, and tools for work. This is the start of culture and cities and things are developing and growing. And as you're reading about generation giving to generation, there's part of you that if you're just kind of reading slowly and closely, you're going, oh man, things are kind of on the up and up. They're playing harps and lyres and they've got instruments. They've got tools. They're, they're like making headway here. And then you get to the seventh generation and here's this guy Lamech. And all of a sudden you see that the The death roll is in as much effect as it's ever been. In fact, it's now in the seventh generation. It's come to its fullness. Did you hear it? Did you see it highlighted there? That it says he took two wives. Up until this point, a man and a woman being joined together was known as Yadah. Adam knew his wife. Cain knew his wife. Lamech took two women. It's the first time that polygamy starts in the scriptures. Never commanded in scripture, always causing heartache and brokenness in the scripture. This is the first picture of it. Lamech saying, I'm going to take for myself two women. 
Now it's not only is he holding back from God, he now is stepping up and saying, I will satisfy my own needs and my own desires in my own way. Thank you very much. Do you see it? Depravity continuing to root in, sin swelling. When you reject the word from others and you reject God, you will start to think, I can chart my own path. I will fulfill myself in my own ways and in my own time with no respect to what God has to say about it. And the the self-aggrandizement, did you hear it? It has settled in in Lamech's story. I mean, the truth is, if you become defensive and angry and no one has spoken to you in a very long time about any of your blind spots because they know how you react and so they've just quit doing it, what will end up happening is you'll end up sounding like this guy. Brutish, proud. Did you hear him? Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. He speaks about himself in the third person. (laughs) Listen to me. This is what I've done. I kill people for wounding me. This is the voice of a man that hasn't heard the truth from anyone in a long time. This is what the death roll does to you. You get so tightly bound up in yourself, no one can speak to you and you start walking around like you've got it all together. You're untouchable. The self-aggrandizing work, the self-fulfilling work, and finally the self-preservation work that he's not, he's, he's now ultimately saying, I can defend myself 77 times. It's interesting that God in his divine care of Cain said, I will protect you and I will pour out sevenfold wrath on anyone who tries to touch Cain. God's saying, here's my perfect judgment. I'm gonna protect this one. And here's Lamech saying, well, I can do that one better. I'm better even than God himself. I will defend myself 77 times. I don't need God to defend me. Cain needed God to defend him seven times over. Well, I can handle it 77. Thank you very much. When all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place cut off from other people, cut off from God, full of ourselves, we know that we are in the absolute throes of the death roll. This is the dead end road. You can't fix it and you can't manage it. Listen. been praying for this community and asking God, please, where someone feels trapped right now, where they're still convincing themselves, I can handle this. I can steer out of this. I can fix it. I've been begging God that by the power of his spirit this morning, he would convince you, you can't. Sin will kill you. And it will stop at nothing less. Your sophistication and time and energy and management is only going to make it worse. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do? We must kill sin or it will kill us. And I want to read to you two verses at the end of this chapter that speak to the hope of how we go about that. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. It says this, and Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and she called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name 
of the Lord. What is our hope? Our hope is that the the line of the snake crusher is still alive. The birth of Seth and his son Enosh, all of a sudden the people begin to call out to the name of God. And if you were to look in a place like Luke chapter 3, what you would see is that the line of Seth was established and continued to develop. There were others in the line of Seth like a man named Judah and his his great son, King David, and to him came Jesus. Jesus, who was introduced in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter one, he was called the firstborn of all creation. What an interesting name. The firstborn of creation had been Cain. But what God is saying is, no, no, no. Before Cain was born, my son has brought forth eternally from my heart. He's the true firstborn of all creation. And as Hebrews 12, 24 says, it says this, that his innocent blood was shed just like Abel's was. Innocent blood shed, but his blood speaks a better word than Abel's does. Abel calls out curses on Cain saying he deserves to die. The blood of Jesus speaks a different and a better word over you and me. It says that even though we deserve to die, he died in our stead. The question becomes, as we consider the death of Christ, is how do we then kill our sin? By faith in Christ, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. What we do is that thing that has its hold on you right now. The thing that's threatening to take you into the death spiral. We lay hold of it and we take it to the cross of Christ and we say, look at him. Look at him bleeding and dying there. His blood kills you. You, temptation and desire that thinks you can tell my story. Listen, he's already put you to death. You have no power anymore. He paid the price of sin. And in his resurrection life, he is extending life and forgiveness to me. Not judgment 77 times over, but what he offers is a grace avalanche. When Peter comes to him, he says, how many times do we forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, 70 times seven. He says, I see Lamech's judgment and I raise it exponentially. I have an avalanche grace flowing from the blood of the cross and it speaks a better word over your life. Friends, your shame and guilt and temptation and desire does not tell your story. He does. You drag it out into the light. You speak it honestly to one another with a brother and a sister. And you say, I need you to know this about me because I don't want it to tell my story anymore. And together you situate yourselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus and rejoice that his blood speaks your freedom and your life, not your curses and your death. This doesn't have to tell our story because the snake crusher came and he does. Sin swells. It wants to kill you. By faith in Christ, put it to death and live. Let me pray for us. God, right now, please, by the power of your spirit, would you draw really close to your sons and your daughters in this room? Would you speak truthfully to them by the power of your spirit, exposing where where repentance is needed? 
I pray for those in the room that have never said yes to you, Jesus, that they would realize that they can't manage it on their own and that they would run to you and receive the gift of life that was purchased for them at the cross. God, we confess that we can't manage it, but we're thankful that you have killed it on our behalf. Help us to walk in freedom and fullness as a people that are being ransomed by the gospel daily, who love the good news of Jesus and walk in its power. Would you make this true for this community? We love you. We thank you, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.